I'm Tony Remus, and this is Tony Talks Back. In the wake of an attack on my own republic, the United States of America, I think it is incumbent on me to state in no uncertain terms that mob violence and political violence is abhorrent. The attack on the United States Capitol on January 6th of this year is the darkest day I have ever witnessed for my country. We are going to talk about the nature of justice in this episode. I can tell you that the deadly riot in the heart of our democracy was not justice. If you listened to my episode, Democracy Killed Socrates, you may remember my mentioning the Republic as Plato's attempt to discern the meaning of justice as it relates to a system of governance. However, given that this is one of the foundational texts of Western civilization, I think it warrants a deeper examination here. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato created his writings as dialogues between characters, sort of like a play. He used his teacher and friend Socrates as a character quite often, and unsurprisingly Socrates is the main character in The Republic. And I wasn't exaggerating when I said The Republic is a foundational text of society. Almost all of the topics I've thus far covered on political philosophy can draw roots back to Plato. The Republic is a political tour de force, in addition to having multiple other levels of analysis. For one, it's a piece of world literature. There's a setting, characters, a quite lengthy dialogue, but the characters not only argue ideas, in a way, they represent the ideas themselves. How the characters relate and engage with each other serves as a metaphor for the fictional Republic Plato builds, and there's a fascinating theory of self and harmony between aspects of oneself that seems to also be represented in the characters. In addition to the sort of grand narratives built up in this search for justice, there's a lot of little pieces of wisdom, far too many to cover today. But for example, Plato asserts a very strong criticism of something we all take for granted, running for public office. It's just a given that politicians today advertise themselves, argue for their candidacy, make speeches and hard-to-keep promises. 2400 years ago, Plato roasted those politicians, arguing that it is degrading to assert yourself as the choice to make. The public should rather appoint you with a tap on the shoulder. The truly good person does not seek power over others, nor to enrich themselves with public funds. So anyone that would desire such power or wealth is not a good person, and in fact the only people fit for public office are ones that would have to be forced to do the job. Plato was one of the earliest writers to advocate for gender equality, seeing that the capacity to rule fellow citizens, and any other capacity, is found in both men and women. In Plato's Utopian City, which follows broadly meritocratic guidelines, there is no gender discrimination when it comes to positions of power. This, by the way, is in direct opposition to the stance of Plato's home city, Athens. Women were not allowed to participate in the assembly, which was their democratic voting body, and women had, in general, less freedom compared to men. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What is the deal with this city, Plato argues about? The writing begins with Socrates and a man named Glaucon traveling in the city Piraeus along the coast near 
Athens. There's a fair amount of names, but don't worry too much about those details. The two are stopped by a group led by Polemarchus, who rather aggressively demands that Socrates and Glaucon visit his home rather than leave the city. Polemarchus does this by saying his group of men can overpower the two travelers and force them to do what he wants. Socrates responds by asking if there is no way to persuade them otherwise. And Polemarchus answers with, but can you persuade us if we refuse to listen to you? And that's how the book starts. You can see the content of The Republic is almost infinitely deep. In these few beginning lines, Plato addresses one of the fundamental problems of society, the clash between unreasoning power and rational, peaceful discussion. How do you reason with someone who does not want to be reasoned with? Or at least, how do you deal with them? Regardless of the answer to these questions, Socrates and Glaucon go along with Polemarchus and his men, including Glaucon's brother, Adamantus. Glaucon and Adamantus, together with Socrates, are basically the main characters in the later parts of the book. The group visits the home of Polemarchus and his father, Cephalus. Socrates, in his usual, somewhat annoying manner, begins questioning Cephalus on various subjects, and the conversation eventually gets around to the topic of justice. What is justice? The old man, Cephalus, thinks justice is speaking the truth, paying back debts, and giving people what they are owed. Fairly reasonable answer. The famous Socratic objection to that is that you wouldn't give a friend back a deadly weapon, which they left in your care, if that friend is now gone crazy and wants to murder someone with the weapon. When Socrates brokered his objection, Cephalus abruptly leaves and passes the argument to his son, Polemarchus. Polemarchus is much more concerned with hostile elements than his father. He turned his father's argument into justice being doing good to friends and harm to enemies. Again, a quite reasonable answer. If I were asked on the spot for a definition of justice, I doubt I could do much better than that. But again, Socrates objects. Socrates is concerned that, since we are human and imperfect, we could very well be confused about who is our friend and who is our enemy. And in comes the most ferocious of the discussion participants, Thrasymachus. A teacher in his own right, Thrasymachus lays down a very simple definition of justice. Justice is the interest of the stronger. The tyrant's interest is justice. Therefore, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. I realize the Romans came centuries later, but you get the point. Those of us with a certain moral compass may immediately feel offended at this definition of justice, but there is something to be said for it. Power, being able to get what one wants, is an undeniable aspect of the human condition. Socrates tamed Thrasymachus by sort of flipping the definitions around and getting Thrasymachus to agree that, actually, justice is a sort of virtue. And Thrasymachus is instead advocating for injustice, 
a powerful tyrant that cares not for virtue. Justice for Thrasymachus is something for the weak-willed, and there are more arguments on this point, but that's essentially where Thrasymachus stays. It's a sort of reflection on one particular strand of humanity that is not interested in what is good, but rather what is powerful. And that strand is not going away. Become a patron of Tony Talks Back and get exclusive access to bonus content and a private RSS feed where you can download episodes and listen on your favorite podcast platform ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash tonytalksback or click on the link down below. Glaucon and Adamantus next inherit the argument. Glaucon in particular acts as an assertive, willful conversationalist. A key objection he brings is that of the Ring of Gyges, a ring that can turn the wearer invisible. Glaucon asserts that no man could resist doing unjust actions with unlimited power, such as a magic ring grants. The only thing holding back our wills is the fact that we are constrained within a system that punishes injustice. Adamantus, for his part, backs up Glaucon by pointing to all the evidence that injustice can actually be quite profitable. How can one truly call their life just if all it ever brings is misery and hardship to oneself? Socrates has to argue against this basic human drive for survival in favor of justice, and along the way must also discern what exactly justice is and why it is valuable for its own sake. To that end, Plato creates a city named Callipolis, the beautiful city. Plato's city is one I find fascinating as a metaphor, but horrifying as a reality. Plato makes no argument for basic freedoms, and in fact, argues that existing poetry and art should be banned, expelled, so as not to poison the well, so to speak. Plato's attack on the poets is one of the, if not the, most controversial parts of the Republic. The Greek mythos is filled with insane stories of the gods exhibiting every kind of vice. Zeus is a notorious adulterer, and that's probably his least bad, bad quality. Plato argues that such stories do harm to people's soul, their mind if you will. They are not good role models. The art of Plato's Republic should depict the gods as exemplars of virtue. As an American, it's hard to accept that freedom of speech, First Amendment rights and all that, should be abolished, but within one's own mind, at least, I can see the argument for cleansing your thoughts of stories praising evil and injustice Plato advocates for communal living for certain populations of Callipolis, meaning in particular that children are raised by many parents, with no individual knowing whose child is whose. Even more extreme, there is no such thing as monogamy. Adults have many partners, shared in common, and perhaps the most extreme of all, private property is outlawed. Nothing belongs to you, but rather everything belongs to everyone. 
Again, this is for a specific population within Kalepolis, the warrior or guardian class trained to protect the Republic. Taken literally, it's a rather insane proposal. In the dialogue, Socrates acknowledges as much, but taken more as a metaphor for temperance of the soul, perhaps there is a lesson to learn there. Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, from the biblical Ten Commandments. Pretty hard to covet someone's wife when wives don't exist. Keep your envy in check, and the Republic benefits. Finally, the most important part of the city are those who rule. Plato argues for his famous philosopher kings. He claims justice will not be found until kings are philosophers and philosophers are kings. What is a philosopher, you ask? Who are these people fit to rule Callipolis, the beautiful city? Simplified definition of philosopher. The philosopher is one who searches out the truth and wisdom. In Plato's arguments, it is closely tied to Plato's theory of the forms. In short, the form of, say, the good, or justice, is a sort of abstract, capital G, good, or capital J, justice. Goodness and justice in the world only approximate their true nature, and it is the goal of the philosopher to understand their form as it really is. So Plato has a fun little allegory that may help explain his madness, the allegory of the cave. Imagine prisoners chained and unable to move at the bottom of a cave. A fire behind them lights up the back wall. Across the wall, they see shadows dancing, puppets and objects. The prisoners do not know they are merely shadows. That's all they've ever known. For a prisoner to escape their bonds and the cave and realize the true nature of the shadows, you might say they've undergone a philosophical transformation. They are philosophers who can grasp the form of objects. There is, of course, much more to this allegory, but I'll leave it there. This kind of person, the one who seeks the truth, is placed by Plato on a sort of golden pedestal. The philosopher is the only one fit to lead. Now, say what you will about modern politics, the specifics of our currently elected officials. I think it's fair to say that very few of them would meet Plato's standard of a philosopher king. Perhaps such a civilization is actually impossible in reality. As was stated by Thrasymachus in Plato's own dialogue, justice and virtue and perhaps even philosophy can be considered fool's games by those who seek power above all. And while, as I've explained before, democracy has its downfalls, at least we're not living in a sort of authoritarian dictatorship under a so-called philosopher king. How could society possibly choose a philosopher king accurately? Yet the infeasibility of the task doesn't necessarily make Plato wrong. I do feel as though philosophy is something of a necessity for making accurate judgments about the world, life, nature, existence. A leader without philosophical inclination appears to me as a sort of empty vessel open to being filled by any nonsense that might come along. 
In keeping with this analogy, philosophy would act as a sort of critical thinking escape valve at the bottom of the vessel to let out unwise thoughts. Yeah, I'll leave that topic there. I'm sure you have your own idea of what a good leader ought to be like. Mine is a philosopher. So in this city, ruled by philosophers, with a strict authoritarian grasp on all aspects of society, where is justice? That was the point of this creation, was it not? As put by Socrates, justice is everyone doing what they are best suited to do for the benefit of all. Justice is harmony. Harmony between the parts of the city, what keeps the city together and functional. And taken as a metaphor, as it seems Plato intended it to be, one can apply the rules of Callipolis to one's own body and spirit. The individual should be ruled by their own philosopher king, by reason and wisdom. This allows for harmony within oneself, as the parts of oneself compete with each other. The philosopher king determines what is best through wisdom. It is allowing those aspects of yourself, best suited to what you are doing, manifest. And it is doing so in a way that is harmonious, both within your own soul and for those souls around you. There's so much more I could talk about in the Republic. So many earth-shattering arguments still debated today. But to end this discussion, I find it relevant for where we are as a society for us to think about what exactly it is that we are doing in modern republics. In America, we've now had a violent attack on our capital by people with a range of differences, but a common thread is a disillusionment in our republic. They don't believe in our system anymore. You might say they've rejected the approach of rational discussion, as Polemarchus did in the beginning of the republic, choosing instead force and strength of number. Once again, that first question posed, how do you reason with someone who does not want to be reasoned with? One thing to contemplate is how society, the Republic, embodies and is embodied in every member of society. In other words, the Republic resembles its constituents. If a large part of society rejects its own rule, you can be fairly certain the Republic will grow to resemble that rejection. An America in which the Constitution is treated more as a suggestion then the law of the land is not an America I want to live in. I suggest every American consider that, even with all its flaws, our republic and its principles are strong. We abandon those at great peril. Not that we shouldn't question our principles, laws, and traditions, but that questioning must be done from a position of philosophy, of reason, and debate. One cannot simply force by violence their will onto others. So perhaps what is most needed is a national discussion on the foundations of our democracy, based in the understanding of each other as, if not friends, at least not enemies. As some of my listeners are outside the United States, the same basic principle applies to you as well. Approach your problems with philosophy, above all else, 
And if you yet fail to attain perfect goodness or justice, at least you can say you tried your very best. I'm Tony Remus. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like, subscribe, review, wherever you're listening. Share it with your friends and become a patron on Patreon or consider a one-time donation on PayPal. Take it easy.